Hey, just some short business, and we'll get right to it in Matthew chapter 2. Uh, we're praying for Jeanette Cogswell, um, who fell, uh, and unfortunately, she also missed First Noel because of that, and uh, she is uh, recovering, and uh, I hoped that she came home Saturday. I did not hear, um, but she's recovering from uh, broken um, pelvis, which is a very, very painful thing, and also for Donna Malone, who had surgery on Friday, so we're lifting her up too, just two people in our congregation that uh, we love dearly, and the, one of the reasons why I'm even sharing this with you is both of them listen to the messages on the CDs that we send to them in the mail, so praise the Lord, we have a congregation that still gathers around a CD player sometimes. Um, to worship God and to be a part of our church family. Another thing is give, give a lot of thanks and bless those people that are missing the service right now because they're doing a ton of setup, and that's all the Van Dorts and I think uh, Hurley and um, uh, Fantons. Um, I'm going to miss out, out on some names. There's a lot of people that are helping get us ready for a big, big celebration. Now, the cool thing is, is I feel so well set up by what just happened, I could preach out of Winnie the Pooh for two hours and you would be blessed, right? Because, uh, wow, wow. And sometimes it's very hard for me to move from the worship that I was in into focusing on uh, what I'm doing here this morning. I'm going to try. But as we open up <clears throat> Matthew chapter 2, I'm going to remind you that we're in the third of our four-part series called Righteous Yet Afraid. But this time we're going to be looking at someone who is unrighteous and afraid because we looked at Zechariah and Elizabeth in the first uh, part of the series and we showed how Zechariah um, was struck, tarassoed, thrown into fear by the presence of the angel at the altar and he questions whether or not God can accomplish his plan that he has to bring him and Elizabeth a child in their own old age, and that that child would come in the spirit of Elijah, heralding this other child that will come, who then the angel meets with Joseph in, the, in a dream, and Joseph is tarassoed. He is thrown, and he is fearful because uh, of, of what he's being shared in a dream, yet he goes and does exactly what God tells him to do. He was called in our singing this morning, the noblest of men, definitely righteous yet afraid. And so we've been talking about how fear sometimes hits us, that every day that is an emotion that we experience in one way or another. And where do we go with that fear? And where does the righteous person have a different set of values and choices that he makes when he lives in fear? How does his faith make a difference in his life? But most importantly, how does God go ahead of us and sovereignly and providentially work all these things out in our lives. So today we're going to be looking at someone who is unrighteous and afraid. He's a villain. He, has, he wields incredible power over people, just as I do right now because I am keeping you from cinnamon rolls, right? Be nice to me today because I'm going to try to finish early so that you can enjoy so this is who we're going to look at this morning as we head into Matthew chapter 2. So let's pray together. Father, we come to the reconciler of the entire world today. We come to you. We come to you through Jesus, the overcomer. 
so that you, victorious Father, the Father of our salvation plan, the one that causes us to be taken from dead in our sins to alive in Jesus Christ, we come to you, you who crafted the Christmas narratives in Scripture, writing them through your Holy Spirit, and we come to embrace a portion of that story this morning as your very words to us. We come as your worshipers and with the heart of magi this morning as seekers of the king and give us hearts to receive the word of god and to respond to it today holy spirit now we yield to you dying to our fleshly ignorance to our indifference our apathy and even our hostility toward you holy god and we offer ourselves to you as your vessels to be changed again by your word Thank you for Jesus the King. Amen. So the scripture, Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 20, it is a passage to actually use for sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with someone and helping lead that person to Christ. Because the passage is filled with drama. It's, filled, it's got life and death. It's got rule and power. It's got danger. It is a very drawing and, and captivating story here, but it also helps us insert ourselves very quickly into that story and understand our need for rescue and our need for a redeemer, that every one of us has a villain that we are dealing with, and we really, really, really need a savior. Suspense and drama, pure innocence and great evil. It has a powerful villain, and yet we are pointed to God, who defeats this brutal and cunning enemy with meticulous care. And this morning, the text is going to ask several questions of us. The first is, why do we see a villain in the Christmas story? Why, don't we, why do we see a villain in the Christmas story? Why do we see villains in every story? Because there is a villain in every story. Why is the deliverance of the baby Jesus coupled with a story of murder? We're going to have to read this morning about a king who kills somewhere between 25 and 100 babies in, in Bethlehem and all around at the age of two and under just to try to eliminate a threat to himself. That's just not, that just doesn't sound nice and sweet and loving and Christian. And another question that the text is going to ask of us is this, is to what depths can fear take you and me? Where can we go maniacally with our fear? And we're going to see that here this morning. So would you stand for the reading of God's word? We're going to be in Matthew chapter 2 and reading verses 1 through 20. And here we go. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what 
time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go, search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I might come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with what, church? Great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and what, church? Worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now, when they had departed... Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I have called my son. Verse 16, then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region that were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from those wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel Weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are, are dead. This is God's word, church. Amen? Amen. We can be seated. Love it that we stand in respect for God's word. Love that you follow that story. And now that you've heard the story again, aren't you drawn in? Aren't you captivated by this incredible narrative? And, what is, and what's funny about this narrative is there are threats everywhere in this narrative. There are threats to all the people of Jerusalem. There's threats to Herod. There's threats to the wise men. There's definitely threats to Joseph, Mary, and the child Jesus. The threats are everywhere. But the true overarching threat, the threat that really controls the narrative, is the threat of Messiah. That's what's really controlling the narrative here. If you contrast the threats, basically the most threatening person... In all of Israel, King Herod, a man who consolidated his power in, in an amazing way. He is such a historical study to see how he was so cunning and conniving and how he flip-flopped his, even his allegiances with Antigonus and Mark Anthony and Hyrcanus in order to always get what he wanted. This most threatening person in all of Israel is now threatened. But first, let us ask, answer the question of why this story has a villain. And the answer to that is because our story has a villain. All of our stories have, have a villain. And our story is in this story for us to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Are you listening? 
Are you listening on the podcast right now? Hear this clearly. For us to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ, we must see the villains that threaten us. And those villains are sin and death. We must see our capacity to do evil like Herod and to die in our own sins. We must see a holy God that is unreachable without some love-inspired, Messiah-accomplished victory over those villains that leave us helpless and floundering in our own sin. We've got to see that to get it, to understand the villain of our story and understand how we can be rescued from our story. And so, also, the Scripture shows us this contrast of Herod's power versus God's sovereign plan. Here's a man who is threatened, and so what does he do? He kills, and he kills, and he kills, and he kills. You're going to find out that he killed half of, half of his own family to make sure that he protected himself in power. He's murderous. And just as the quote goes from Nietzsche, God is dead, and then God quotes, Nietzsche is dead, so then is Herod dead. This threat to Messiah, he passes away too. Who's the greatest villain of all time? Who's the greatest villain of all time? I mean, it's pretty easy to think like a villain, isn't it? <laughs> right? I mean, look at who we've got up here. Look at all of, of those Lego characters, all those Batman Lego characters, all those villains there. You got the Joker and you got the Penguin and you got Catwoman and, uh, and, and others, okay? And then, oh, oh yeah, if you, if, you, if you follow the Star Wars, what is it? It's not a trilogy, it's a sevenology or whatever. If you follow that, there's Darth Vader. And then, I mean, he, he's one of my favorites. Captain Hook is one of my favorite villains of all. I sort of like those villains that really just are toothless villains too. Like Elmer Fudd, don't you feel sorry for that guy? He's never going to get that wascoey wabbit. He's never going to do it. Don't, don't you feel a little sorry for Wile E. Coyote? He's never going to catch that roadrunner, right? And so under the tree here, I had a friend bring in all of his Star Wars enemies of, uh, of the, uh, what is it, not the Imperial Forces, of the um, Resistance Forces, all of the enemies. You've got Darth Sidious in here. You've got a Stormtrooper. You've got Darth Vader. You've got Darth Maul. Uh, you have that dude that went and tried uh, to uh, kill Obi-Wan Kenobi. I can't remember his name. All of those guys, they're all under, that just doesn't look right, does it? You don't put villains under a Christmas tree. You just don't do that. That's just not right. You put, you know, baby Jesus under the Christmas tree. You put candy canes and gifts and nice things there. And yet we find in this story, we find immense evil. We find death. We find a destructive spirit that not only wanted to kill this child that was born the king, the Greek word there says he wanted to eliminate, he wanted to annihilate, he wanted to destroy him. That's how far his fear took him. So there's a lot of ideas. Now, you, now you're working on your idea of the greatest villain. Now, I, I'm guessing that before you walked in here, this next guy was not even in consideration. Let's see this next guy up on the screen. Yeah, Herod, Herod the Great. 
okay? A maniacal tyrant, cruel, crafty, brutal, paranoid, murderous, jealous, controlling, a manipulator, right? When he was just governor of Galilee, even before he consolidated his power and became the Herodian king, replacing all the Hasmoneans of 135 years, even before that, when he's just the governor of Galilee, some Maccabees rise up, and they revolt because they're, they're trying to assert their Jewish state, and they're trying to have a true religious Jewish state. And so what does he do? He sends out a Roman legion and annihilates all of them and literally tries to get them buried quickly so that there's no evidence of them whatsoever. When he becomes the king of Israel through his flip-flopping from Hyrcanus to Mark Anthony and gets Mark Anthony's approval to become the king of Israel. What does he do when he arrives in Jerusalem? He kills half of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council. 71 people, so 35 or more individuals. He kills all of them immediately because they dared to challenge what he did in Galilee and wanted to bring him to a trial. Herod was known for his opulence, his brutality, his cunning way of consolidating power. This was a self-made man whose ego, whose pride and paranoia caused him to intimidate everybody except the emperor. Actually, you know what Rome called him? They called him king, ally, and friend of the empire. You know what the Jews called him? A half-Jew, a political sellout, but they did so very quietly. When he married Mariamna, who was a, a daughter of a Hasmonean, he was trying to bridge a relationship with the old Hasmonean dynasty. When he marries Mariamna, who was one of ten wives that he took, you know what he does with his first wife, Dor Doris, and, and their son? He sends them off. That's it. That's what we have in history. They were sent off. We don't know where they went. I think I've got an idea where they went. They were just sent off because he wanted what he wanted, and he got what he wanted. As gov oh, excuse me, I already said that. Uh, so he quickly, he quickly consolidates all of his power and begins to t intimidate Jerusalem. And that's why it says there in the scripture, in Matthew chapter 2 and verse 3, that he was terrassoed, thrown on his insides with fear, but all of Jerusalem with him. Because what had happened was, is the religious people and the political people, all of the religious and political part of that society had had to submit to this king for fear of their own destruction. In fact, history records that the Sadducees, those temple guards, those people that were responsible for the order and, and control of the temple, that they had completely thrown in their lot with King Herod. They were so afraid of him. This is a man who took care of threats before they could ever threaten to undercut his power. This is a man who saw very far ahead any type of Indian coming down from the hills. Herod hears of a threat this time, though, and he fears it greatly. Some men who have been honestly and earnestly seeking the prophesied eternal king, they come and they tell him that they're looking for the king. 
For someone who has a campaign of threat assessment, an entire posse of people looking for any threat to squash, this king suddenly looks very ignorant, very feeble, and exposed, caught off guard. And the entire religious and political base of Jerusalem, who have seen more turnovers than a Dutch bakery, they're sorely afraid of how he's going to react. What is he going to do? And yet alongside this tense drama, we see God way ahead, unaffected, way out in front of this thing, accomplishing his perfect plan immaculately, untouched by the threatening villain of our story, completely untouched by it, accomplishing this perfect plan of bringing Messiah Jesus into the world, while Herod looks like a frustrated, wily coyote. He's not going to win. And by the time we reach the end of the narrative, we realize it was never possible for him to win. He was never going to win. And for those who have Jesus, for those who have, who have inserted themselves in that gospel story and seen themselves and seen the true villains of their lives and allowed the rescuer, the redeemer, the savior Jesus to conquer the villains of their own story, sin will never win. Death will never win. Those villains will never get what they want. God has a plan, and that plan steps into our story. God has an incredible plan that is unstoppable, merciful, victorious, rescuing, personal, and powerful. It becomes the one and only rescue mission of our story. It results in not only rescue, but it results in relationship. It's so victorious that it defeats sin and all death. It's so merciful that it takes the judgment and wrath of God and places our villainous sin on Messiah and pays for it through Messiah Jesus, the righteous for the unrighteous. An amazing thing, an amazing thing. If you, if you understand the whole of the gospel, if you follow Jesus from Matthew chapter 2 all the way to his death and then all the way to his resurrection, you, you understand the wild irony of this story right here. God the Father delivers innocent Jesus from death so that Jesus would go and die innocently for us. The Father in his perfect plan delivers innocent baby Jesus so that baby Jesus would grow, would become known among men, would perform miracles, signs, and wonders, would preach like nobody else, would be sinless in everything that he does so that he could be the perfect atonement for you and me so that he could pay that price and demonstrate the great mercy of God. This plan is so personal that it places a holy and righteous Savior inside of you through the Holy Spirit. What a plan. What a plan. Now let's look at a contrast in the responses just for a moment here. First of all, Herod, our villain, he turns to himself. Herod trusts no one. He's going to lie. He's going to deceive. He's going to eliminate his threat. He contrasts the response... 
excuse me, Pastor John Piper remarks on this passage that it reveals a lot about true worship. All right, so, so tune in here. A guy, a really good preacher, says this. He says that the responses of Herod with the responses of the Magi create a contrast in, uh, in, the, in false worship and in true worship. He shares that there are the indifferent to God and then there are the hostile toward God. That many of the indifferent toward God head toward hostility toward God because God is so personal, he gets in their business. And as soon as the indifferent have God get in their business, they become hostile. They will not worship God because they see him as an overthrower. They will not worship God because he wants to rule over them. They will not worship God because he gets all of the glory. And in contrast here, we see the Magi who are true worshipers, who are seeking the one true eternal king. They're willing to be ruled over by this king. They want the complete and total conquer. They come in submission. They're the true worshipers of the passage. They embrace the arrival of this new eternal king, and they're prepared with their gifts of homage. They've even got gifts to offer to this king when they meet him. Their passion is not to protect what they have, but to seek what they might have in this king. They're open, they're submitted, they're seeking. What a contrast. On one side, the indifferent to God get, are, remain indifferent until God gets close and invasive, and that's when the hostility kicks in. On the other side, there are those who are open and those who are seeking and those who are willing and those who are submitted. So there's a very real need of rescue in a host, hostile world. This, this story shows us here this morning. And the first thing that we, we need to understand, we need to get, is that evil is real. Evil remains a threat. It does. Remember what we said? The text would ask us why there is a villain in the Christmas story? Because our story has a villain. And in this Christmas story, we see, as Dwight Pentecost says in the Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah, the vulnerable, humble, little claimant to Israel's throne is threatened by a conniving Tyrant, God sets us up to see something. He sets us up to get something. He shows us the peril. He shows us the danger on purpose so that we will go, uh-oh. Oh, no. Where am I going to go? That's why he does it. Evil is real and it remains a threat. And God gives us a glimpse of evil up close. He shows exactly also, remember what we asked, where can fear take, take us? He also shows us exactly where fear can take a person. To quote the humble, the respectful, the intelligent, the observant, the chocolate lover, Pastor Tom Vandenberg. The other people we have looked at so far in our study responded in righteousness in spite of their fear, but Herod allowed his fear to master him and drive him into deeper depths of depravity. Where are you going? Where's your fear taking you today? I have anxiety just like you. 
I have fears. I have doubts just like you. I worry over a lot of stuff that I can't control because I'm not the author of my own story. But where is your fear taking you? Is it taking you to more sin and to more peril and to more danger? You and I both are encountering villains. And we know some of those villains. You don't have to pull down Captain Hook. You don't have to pull down Darth Vader. You know some of those villains that you've had in your own personal history, don't you? You know that bully from elementary school. You know that kid that made the basketball team ahead of you. You have villains in your own life, and so do I. Michael Weber, fourth grade. He would steal my bike right after school, and then he would ride it all around the parking lot, teasing me as I ran after him and pleaded with him to get off my bike. It's the kind of person that has fun at another person's expense, who teases relentlessly, and then he would ditch the evidence as soon as the teacher would walk out and his wickedness would come to light. Michael Weber, what a villain. Because I certainly have never teased anyone or stolen from anyone. I certainly have never had fun at anyone else's expense. Then there was Denise Ferrini, first grade. The girl in the neighborhood that would control everything. You know that girl? If she did not get what she wanted, she ran to her home and brought her mother out to threaten us all into submission. And it was a weird thing because her parents spoiled her incredibly, so you wanted to be invited into her house to see all the stuff that she had, but you really didn't want to be with her. She was selfish, ignoring the needs of others, controlling and manipulative. One time I was forced to go trick-or-treating with her in the neighborhood, and at one house the owners open up the door and they say, hey, listen, we've nearly run completely out of candy. We want you to just take one Tootsie Pop, okay? What does Denise do? She grabs five Tootsie Pops and runs, leaving me there to face the scorn of the neighbors. And I just go, ah, ah, tch, tch. and I was incensed. I felt personally attacked, humiliated, and embarrassed, unfairly associated with this terrible villain. So, of course, you know what I did. I took two Tootsie Pops and ran. Denise Fiorini. There are still villains. The gospel of Jesus speaks again to all of the villainry of the entire world. The gospel of Jesus Christ says that even the worst, the most threatening of villains, even the worst of evils that you can conceive or imagine is outdone, is sovereignly <laughs> overcome, is victoriously defeated by faith in Jesus Christ. When we see the gospel defeating sin and evil as ambassadors of the gospel, we're called by God to penetrate this present darkness, Ephesians 5, with the Jesus that is in us and to call all villains back to Jesus. All is not well with this world. Jesus was born in a war zone but he emerges unscathed, victorious, even from the grave. So, let's ask the question again. What's the greatest? Who's the greatest villain? 
Who's the greatest villain of all? Well, take a look at this picture. Isn't that really the greatest villain? The one every one of us will face. And you listening on the podcast, the picture that's up on the screen right now is a bunch of old, old, old gravestones. And I love this picture especially because it seems that these stones have been here maybe 100, maybe 200 years. Whatever there was of an earthly life, it is long, long gone. And the scripture says that the wages of sin is death, but that the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, his son. There's only one way around this villain, and it's through Jesus. And so if Jesus can take our indifference and he can take our hostility from us and turn us back to our heavenly father and give us a life with him, what are we doing about fleeing our own hostility? What are we doing about fleeing our own hostility? Titus 3, 3 wraps up what the gospel is, but what the gospel does and calls us to. Take a look at this verse. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Does, you feel like a villain? Foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, hating one another. The worst part of that verse is the first three words, for we ourselves. We're villains. But keep reading. Keep reading. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, we couldn't save ourselves. But according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. You see, our end story, we're justified, we're cleared of all wrongdoing. The wrath of God has been satisfied. We've been richly, rich recipients of God's incredible mercy, and we're heirs now of the hope of eternal life. So then what do we do to flee that sometimes hostility that still arises in us toward God, that sometimes indifference that still arises in us? We flee just as Joseph was told to flee to Egypt. The Greek word means run, get out, get lost, leave immediately. That's the word. Now see 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 22. It uses the same Greek word for flee. We don't know those youthful passions anymore, Titus just told us. We know Jesus. And so what should we do? We should flee the youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. There is something that we can do with our hostility. We can flee all of that through Christ. The word there for passions, it means cravings. It means those desires that come in conflict with God. We don't have to live in conflict with God anymore. And as a follower of Jesus Christ, you can take whatever indifference, whatever hostility you have toward the Savior right now, and you can give that. 
to Jesus. You can ask God to remove it, to take it away through the victorious gospel of Jesus Christ. So, as we wrap up our story, how does God handle opposition? Oh, he beats it all. He beats it all. You can trust that there is no enemy that Jesus Christ has not defeated. 1 Corinthians 15, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then it is coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to, the, to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. But listen, friends, it doesn't just stop there. Not only did God save his innocent son from death so that his innocent son would go to his death for us who are guilty so that we could be saved from the wages of sin, which is our death. He also came to recreate himself inside of us so that we, in view of God's mercies, would present ourselves as living sacrifices to God. Jesus came and died so that we might have life, so that then we also would volunteer our death in worship to God. We would say, God, here's my life. Here's my hostility. Here's my fear. Here's my anxiety. Here's my indifference. Here's my apathy. Here's all of it. A great, great lead worshiper one time said, my dad and I always talk about the altar. We always talk about the altar of God. My dad always asks me, hey, have you squirmed off of the altar? The answer is yes, right? The answer is yes. How does God handle opposition? He brings us all the way from death back to life so that then we can again die to him and give our lives away again and again and again. This is the story we find ourselves in, in the story of wicked, evil, villainous, but defeated Herod. We find ourselves walking in the victory of Jesus Christ as God always purposed, as God always planned, and as God immaculately fulfilled. And so then what greater thing could we do as we celebrate with a song and then we go and celebrate with food and we just keep on enjoying each other and enjoying the goodness of God. What greater thing could, be ha could happen right here and now than for all of us, for all of us here to get rid of all hostility, all villainry, all opposition to God entirely whatsoever to thrust our hearts to God in faith and say, God, here I am. If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, I urge you right now, right there in your pew to receive the free gift of God, which is salvation through his own son, whose life was spared so that he would spare you with his life. And take God's promised mercy to you in the form of Jesus and his blood atonement for your sins and become a follower of Jesus Christ right now. If you know Christ, but you've been walking in hostility, you've been walking in indifference, you've been walking in apathy, you've been walking in fear, you've been walking in anything that sets you up in opposition to victorious Jesus right now, right here, right now in worship, give it all up. Give it all up. And let's see... Let's see the kingdom come again and again and again and again here. What 
what a great gift it would be. And watching these magi coming to bring gifts to this king, what a great offering it would be back to God for us to give our lives to him. Four weeks ago, I shared a story with you about Marge and about how Marge, she never has eaten anything. She's never tasted a potato chip or a spoonful of yogurt or ice cream or anything. She's always had a feeding tube in her body. She's never spoken, so she's never said, I love you back to her parents. She's never been able to pray out loud. Her her parents, uh, they adopted her at the hospital because the birth mother um, walked out. And um, Marge had multiple brain troubles, problems, all of those things. And doctors said, look, we don't know what to do other than to just comfort her. They warned the parents. They said, look, she'll probably be dead in her first year, if not then, in her first six years. Well, Marge lived to be 21 years old. Last week, Marge went to be with Jesus. She did what the gravestones remind us all of. She went, oh wait, she died, she passed. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is untouched. It remains immaculate. For Marge, the kingdom of God just came again. The villains of her life were completely defeated. And she celebrates and she celebrates. Why would you and I, why would you and I let anyone or anything but God win?